Hi, welcome to Around the World in 80s Movies. I'm Vince Leo. I'm the author of the film review website, Quipster.net. I've been doing film reviews since 1996. Over 4,000 of my reviews you can read anytime. Quipster.net is where to go. Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. While you're there, I do encourage you to click the link to my other podcast called the Quipster Film Review Podcast, where I look at more recent movies out in theaters or streaming into your TV currently. The Quipster Film Review Podcast is the name, so check that out at quipster.net. Today I'm going to be getting into a film that has been largely anticipated by listeners of this podcast. At least a few have reached out to me and put it on their list of ones they want me to cover. The Thing from 1982, also known as John Carpenter's The Thing, because John Carpenter did direct this film. It's R-rated. It does have pervasive gore, a lot of gore. For its time, violence and language, the runtime is an hour and 49 minutes. I guess Kurt Russell's the main star? It's more of an ensemble piece. It does have Wilford Brimley, Keith David, Richard Mazur, T.K. Carter, and a whole bunch of others. John Carpenter, of course, is the director, and the screenplay is credited to Bill Lancaster. Now, as far as the origins of this remake, perhaps you might call it, Starts in 1975, and while at this party for a mutual screenwriter friend, there was a TV producer named Stuart Cohen in attendance, and he had a conversation with a film producer named David Foster there that involved him talking about how he'd love to break into features instead of continuing his TV career. So Foster agreed to entertain any ideas that Cohen had. And a little bit later... While Cohen was dining at a restaurant with his friend from their USC film school days, John Carpenter, they both started talking about some of their favorite movies. That included one of the favorites for both of them called The Thing from Another World. It was a movie that was directed by Christian Nyby, at least he was credited as the director. Howard Hawks is said to have basically co-directed that film back in 1951. Hawks also was the producer. Cohen floated this idea of maybe they should remake that movie. But after they talked about it some more, they mutually decided that their reverence for that film prevented them from doing a straight remake of it. They would rather, if they were going to do it, make a movie on the story that The Thing from Another World was based on, called Who Goes There by Joseph Campbell. Joseph Campbell, he used the pseudonym of Don A. Stewart when he wrote that story back in 1938. It was published in astounding science fiction magazine. He was inspired to write this story. He had this unsettling feeling when he was growing up. He had a loving mother, but that mother also had a twin sister who was very mean, identical twins. And he felt that sometimes he would have to test them to decide whether it was the loving mother or the mean sister, friend or foe. And he gave that feeling of what would happen if the person you trusted was not that person anymore. Cohen met with Foster to pitch this film adaptation of Campbell's novella. And when Foster mentioned that it had already been made into a film, of course, the 1951 film, Cohen said that Hawk's film, it changed about 90% of the original story. He urged him to read it as a way to remake the thing without it actually being a remake. Foster and his producing partner, Larry Terman, they liked the idea. They took it to Universal Pictures president, Ned Tannen, who coincidentally had just married Howard Hawks' daughter, Kitty Hawks, in 1976. Tannen was enthusiastic, and he bought the Campbell story rights from screenwriters Hal Barwood and Matthew Robbins after they declined writing the adaptation. However, the studio wanted to use the title of The Thing, which the story rights did not give them, so that meant buying the rights 
to the Hawks film, which was owned at that time by producer Wilbur Stark. Stark had bought the rights to over 20 prominent films from RKO Pictures. They met Stark's asking price that included an executive producer credit in exchange for the film rights, and Stark also gave them a script treatment. They didn't solicit it or determine that they were going to use it, but he gave it to them. Cohen, of course, pitched his friend Carpenter to be the director. He had just made a Howard Hawks remake of a sword, a modern take on Hawks's Rio Bravo. It's called Assault on Precinct 13, came out in 1976. Foster and Terman, though, they didn't really like Assault on Precinct 13. They also wanted somebody who happened to be under contract with Universal to head the film. Ned Tannen assigned the Texas Chainsaw Massacre's Toby Hooper and Kim Hankel, who they had just signed to a contract to develop the thing. Hooper and Hankel went to work on it. It was kind of a rush job because there was a looming writer strike within about a month, and they seemed to not be interested very much in the paranoia themes of Campbell's original story. They veered off into something that was later described as an incomprehensible riff on Moby Dick. Universal was very unhappy with this direction. They decided to release Hooper and Hinkle from future drafts. They started courting during this period director John Landis, who was working on Animal House. He also passed. Playwright and author David Wiltsey, he came on board for a new script, but he, like Hooper, also strayed from the source material. He had this alien that resembled the light source that enveloped people. It wasn't where they wanted to go either. Next was William F. Nolan. He was hot off of Logan's run. He was more faithful to the original story, but the producers were not very enamored of the script he turned in, and that left Universal to finally put the project on hold. Nolan's treatment, by the way, it was published commercially with Campbell's novella back in 2009. You can find it online if you are interested. Cohen at this time started pitching Carpenter again to direct. He showed Foster and Terman a raw version of Halloween, but they didn't really like that one either, even with the nod that was paid to the first version of The Thing in one scene where the babysitter and the kids are watching it on television. However, when Halloween became the most successful independent feature of all time back in 1978, and then Alien did extremely well at the box office in 1979, Universal took notice and decided to revive the project, and Carpenter got his shot. Now, Carpenter at that time, he was finishing up on The Fog. He had Escape from New York lined up after that. He was also writing screenplays, one for Halloween 2, and then there was another one for Jennings Lang, a project called Lightning. He didn't really have time to come up with a script as he normally would, so somebody else would have to do it. So the producing team compiled the list of 10 potential writers. And after the top choices didn't pan out, including Richard Matheson and a few other prominent ones, Cohen suggested the name Bill Lancaster. He was the son of actor Burt Lancaster, and Cohen had worked with him before and had a very positive opinion of him. Cohen and Carpenter happened to like Lancaster's screenplay for The Bad News Bears, especially the way he handled a lot of characters economically, all with very distinct personalities and humorous banter tempered with a lot of biting repartee. When Lancaster was brought in to talk to Carpenter, his ideas really jibed with where Carpenter wanted to go with the material, and he was hired. Now, there was one snag that did occur shortly afterward, and that was when John Carpenter announced that his dream Western project called El Diablo might have to take precedence over the thing, and that left his availability in doubt for the foreseeable future. So Walter Hill was contacted perhaps to come in as a pinch hitter, Sam Peckinpah and Michael Ritchie were also considered as maybe a backup, but fortunately, El Diablo 
wasn't quite ready to go yet, so Carpenter agreed to proceed with the thing. So later in 1979, Lancaster began adapting the Campbell novella. He secluded himself in a mountain cabin somewhere, away from all technology and interruptions, and he began to peel the layers of Campbell's story, which was a lot of talk, very little action, but he felt that there was enough workable material there that he could make for an engaging full-length movie. Lancaster likened the story to a locked-door Agatha Christie murder mystery, but one where everybody could be the murderer. If he did it right, the paranoia, the distrust among the men, would be much more deadly than the monster itself. Lancaster found that his hardest task was trying to add moments of action and to give each character a distinct personality within that frame. He completed the screenplay in August of 1980. Everybody loved it, especially Carpenter, who called it the best script he'd ever read. Now, Lancaster's story begins with this American scientific research station in Antarctica, where the scientists have grown disturbed when they hear gunshots emanating from this Norwegian helicopter shooting at a runaway husky. The Norwegians miss their quarry and end up getting killed with no explanation as to what exactly the problem was. The American crew then travels to the Norwegian camp only to find very odd occurrences there, including this mangled humanoid body that somehow has normal internal organs. Then the husky that they've taken into their research facility reveals that it's not really a dog, but it's an alien organism that has crash-landed in that vicinity 100,000 years ago with the power to mimic and absorb other life forms. And the men of the camp are its next intended victims unless they find a way to thwart it or at least to not turn on each other because it's now every man for himself. Now, the thing is notable for being Carpenter's first studio film. He had signed on with Universal Pictures with some apprehension that he might lose control. Thankfully, Carpenter found that he had ample creative freedom, not full freedom, but enough to make it workable. He agreed, again, to sign up with Universal after this because it was a positive experience. They wanted him to adapt Stephen King's Firestarter with Bill Lancaster doing the script. So they signed the contract before the thing came out. By the way, Kurt Russell was not John Carpenter's first choice to play McCready, which is, I guess, the closest thing this film has to a main hero. Lancaster wrote McCready with Clint Eastwood in mind, and Carpenter happened to love Eastwood, but he was unavailable to them at the time. Carpenter then pursued other names to look into. Jeff Bridges was a favorite. Nick Nolte, Sam Shepard, Christopher Walken. Tom Atkins was another favorite. Scott Glenn, Ed Harris, Brian Dennehy. Jack Thompson almost got the role, an Australian actor. Many others were considered. There's Kevin Klein. There's a lot of names you could throw out there. Harrison Ford. I mean, you name an actor in that age range, and they pretty much were considered at some point. Things started to change when Carpenter went to Alaska. He started to shoot second unit footage there, and he found the experience so grueling that at that point, he really didn't want any kind of prima donna actors to have to coddle up there. So he needed somebody he could rely on, and that meant the most reliable actor he could think of, which was Kurt Russell. Russell really didn't have interest in doing a horror film, but he did consider John Carpenter to be a master of the horror genre. So when Carpenter did finally ask, Russell dropped his intended debut directorial project of his own that he was doing with his actress wife, Susan Hubley, and he signed on to The Thing. He didn't want to regret missing out later on a potential all-time classic. Now, for the rest of the cast, Carpenter really wanted mostly unknowns. For the more comical character of Palmer, they initially looked at stand-up comedians like Jay Leno and Gary Shandling and Charles Fleischer. 
you know, they could all play for funny, but none of them could really play terrified very convincingly. So they decided to get a, a real actor for the role, hoping he could play comical. Now, after considering Isaac Hayes and Mark Mosley was tapped for the child's role, he had left to do Magnum P.I. And that left Ernie Hudson as the top choice for Childs until Keith David auditioned. Carpenter also nixed his initial choice of Donald Pleasance to play a character called Blair, a key character in this film, because he was too well-known. Audiences would notice when he's supposed to disappear for a long stretch, so he cast, at that time, an unknown Wilford Brimley. Comedian Franklin Ajay, he had read for the character called Nalls, but during his reading, he went on this 15-minute diatribe that the part was a racist stereotype, and that's when Carpenter decided to break up the meeting, and obviously they went with T.K. Carter for that role. Rick Baker and his protege, Rob Bottin, who had worked with Carpenter on The Fog, they were busy doing competing werewolf films. So Foster and Terman hired Dale Kuypers, who they had worked with on 1981's Caveman, to design the monster and do the makeup effects. Kuypers drew up this insectoid-type creature that could change its size and appearance through mind control hallucinations. However, during pre-production, Kuypers had an accident. He was pushed through this plate glass department store window by this intoxicated biker that left him in a hospital. He was invalid for two months. So fortuitously, Botine had finished with his other project, The Howling, and he announced his availability. So Carpenter asked if he could come in and assist Kuypers with his makeup. But Botine, at that point of his career, he had no interest in being an assistant anymore or in completing Kuypers' work because he didn't really care for the Kuypers design. Carpenter decided to take Botine out to dinner. He wanted to pick his brain. What kind of monster would he create if he had the chance? Botine said that Kuiper's monster resembled a bug. It laid eggs in humans. It bursts out of their bodies. No matter how well Carpenter could make the film, it was going to be called a ripoff of Alien because of that. And that did concern Carpenter when he heard it. Botine's idea of a thing, he thought, should be something that nobody could define. People could easily call Kuiper's monster a bug or whatever they see. But Botine thought people really fear the unknown. They fear the unpredictable. So the monster should continuously change so it could be anyone or anything or anywhere. If a seemingly normal character's belly all of a sudden opens up with a mouth with sharp teeth and bites the arms off of somebody, or somebody reveals eyes all over his back, audiences would be terrified. They would be mortified by seeing this occur. Botine also offered kind of a backstory to his version of the thing, that the thing could be a fugitive from other planets that somehow blended by assimilation. It conquered other alien species from within. This could be an alien that crash lands on Earth, it's dormant until it's found, and its instinct is to hide among whatever animals it confronts by blending in, but it keeps getting rooted out upon which it attacks. It's not an insect or a mammal or reptile or an alien monster. It could be all of those things, whatever it has consumed and assimilated. Carpenter found Botine's suggestions as, in his words, weird. Maybe too weird to do a whole movie about, but he said he would sleep on it. And the next day, Carpenter was absolutely convinced. Botine's vision was brilliant. It would make the thing an astounding horror experience like no other. Botine and Carpenter also shared a belief that psychological terror is much more frightening than physical. And Carpenter wanted audiences to project their emotions to whatever is happening on the screen Everybody would fear this thing because it could turn into whatever anybody in the audience feared most. So 
Carpenter replaced Kuypers with Botine and his crew, and he told them let their imaginations run wild. Now, Botine's monster in the film assumes the appearance of anything that it assimilates, and its nature is to survive. It does imitate its enemies. It absorbs its enemies until it has none left, and then presumably it moves on. It can assume any form after attacking and absorbing other living organisms, and that makes it especially difficult to identify. In all, the monster had about three dozen different looks for this film, and that caused the effects crew to have to use mechanics and puppetry, and it required nearly all of Botine's crew to operate some of these things. Botine overworked himself through the course of this movie, never taking a day off or maybe even an hour, very little sleep to the point where he needed outside assistance to try to stay on schedule, and that's when he brought in Stan Winston to assist with the dog thing design when one of the dogs turns into the thing, and Randy Cook was called in to perform some stop-motion animation for this key sequence involving the Blair thing. Carpenter refused to use that scene, thinking that it was a little too out of place, but when it was over, Botine... He was exhausted. He was hospitalized for exhaustion and pneumonia. Roy Arbogast came in and assisted with mechanical effects like snowstorms and explosions and the monster's destructive aftermath. Albert Whitlock was hired to provide some of his excellent map painting work. Carpenter favorite Dean Cundy, he provided the cinematography, working with production designer John Lloyd, emphasizing claustrophobic environments, practical lighting. He wanted to wash out all of the colors except for the monster. Cundy also encouraged showing the monster much more in this film. Botine had a tendency to want to leave his monster more in silhouettes and shadows, make it more of a mystery, but Cundy really thought that they should bring it out into the light. Something, given the nature of the thing, might scare people much more than keeping it in shadows. Something that Carpenter did agree with. Now, one criticism that people make about the thing, especially today, is that there are no female characters in this film, unless you count the voice work that is done for the chess program that was done by Carpenter's wife at the time, Adrian Barbeau. But even Howard Hawks in his film from the early 50s had two female characters in the movie. But Lancaster did not write any female characters in because he thought that having female characters there might complicate the story dynamics, and he wanted to keep it much more streamlined. As an excuse, he felt that Kurt Russell was a handsome enough guy that they might actually lure in female audiences despite having no female characters. He did include a scene of maybe the the loneliness of being there without women. It was kind of a humorous scene where McGreedy is shown to have a sex doll that was later removed as something that was too distracting by Carpenter. Now, one of the pre-Carpenter screenwriters, I don't know who, John Carpenter didn't want to name the person, but tried to frame the alien in the end, as a positive symbiotic force rather than a destructive force. Carpenter happened to be a nonconformist. He was kind of a lifelong loner. He wasn't fond of a message of symbiosis. But if you want to see a version of that concept and you want to see women in a version of the thing, there's a 2018 film called Annihilation that has a mostly female cast that does explore the symbiosis theme that this other screenwriter tried to present but was rejected by Carpenter. Now, getting back to things, shooting took place primarily in Juneau, Alaska, as well as Stewart, British Columbia, and Carpenter and his crew endured a lot of harsh cold, lack of visibility at various times. Carpenter and several members of the second crew went without heat or electricity or running water for several days at a time while they were scouting locations and filming exteriors using acting doubles. Warming sheds and vats of soup were needed at pretty much all times, especially because the trailer heating was inadequate. Everybody pretty much got sick. 
interiors were done mostly at Universal Studios, but they refrigerated the studios as much as they could to keep things cold, not quite to freezing, but they did have to contend with things like chemicals in the air and kerosene smoke filling their lungs, so it wasn't any picnic either. If you're a Carpenter fan, it does have his theme of people trapped and having to fight their way out. It's very familiar in that respect. And this speaks to Carpenter's own fears of being confined, whether physically or in his career. His love of horror is kind of an entrapment as well, a fear of death. He feels that that's a universal fear that all audiences the world over can relate to. Carpenter in particular, though, has a fear of being controlled by other people because he feels that losing that autonomy that he has means losing his identity or the identity of the art that he's trying to create. Carpenter is always seen as kind of an outsider looking in. He's not somebody who's able to assimilate very freely. He resists a conformity in favor of maintaining his individuality, which is why the thing is something that makes him personally afraid. Now, it was not always easy for Carpenter to make this movie. They reduced Campbell's characters from 37 to 12 for the screenplay, but Carpenter still felt challenged because there were too many personalities to have to give direction to for particular scenes, too difficult to photograph all of them, especially when they called for all of them to appear in a specific room indoors. Carpenter felt that the middle of the film was also too talky, so he started to restructure it. He decided to reshoot several scenes outdoors, taking people up to the snowy locations to provide more outdoor experience with more action, more movement that he felt the film really needed. He wants things to constantly be moving. Carpenter also had to fight for the famous ambiguous ending of the thing. Carpenter, he argued that either way, it was kind of a no-win because audiences would feel defeated if he left the film on a note where there was no hope. Also, an uplifting ending would probably be deemed as corny. So... There were three endings that were shot. There was the ambiguous one that Carpenter had in mind. There was another one that shows Childs walking off into the snow, presumably to freeze to death, and that leaves McCready alone to fight the thing. And there was another one showing the aftermath of McCready surviving after blowing up the creature, and he's awaiting the results of a blood test that come positive. He is human in the end. Preview audiences scored the film similarly, and that means poorly. Preview audiences were not necessarily enamored of this film, no matter which ending that they tacked onto it. So Carpenter decided if that's the case, he's going to go with the ending that he prefers. And that means the ambiguous one. Russell, by the way, wrote the final lines that we see in that ambiguous ending. And by the way, because there's a lot of speculation as to what happens at the end of this film, both the screenwriter, Lancaster, and the producer, Cohen, they firmly believe that both men are human at the end. Carpenter, though, has been very inconsistent about his beliefs there. Sometimes he says he doesn't really know, and then there's other times where he says one is definitely the thing, but he's not going to reveal who it is. You can draw your own conclusions, I suppose. Now, for scoring duties, the producers considered Jerry Goldsmith primarily, but they also considered John Corigliano and Alex North. But Carpenter, who usually composed music for his films, said that the only composer that he might accept was Ennio Morricone, so they approached Morricone. He initially turned it down because he didn't feel he had time. He was doing Once Upon a Time in America coming up, and that was going to take at least a year of his time. The producers, though, got him through some sweet-talking to attend a private screening of some of Carpenter's raw footage, and he said he might be able to provide something if they came and visited him when he was working in Rome. So Carpenter and the producers, they went to Rome, and they saw 
Morricone and uh, in his office in Rome for a couple of days, and Carpenter played notes on the piano of what he was looking for, coldness, but not necessarily hopelessness. And Morricone decided to get to work, and he provided, in the end, 22 minutes of thematic suites that Carpenter could use to edit into his film. Carpenter had to provide some music of his own. He worked with his partner, Alan Howarth, on adding extra music to try to bridge some of the scenes. The thing, when it was released, it drew famously scathing reviews from several prominent critics. They complained about things like the effects were just too overwhelming. They couldn't get into the characters. They complained about how distasteful, how depressing, how overbearingly bleak the film is. This was really at a time when people were looking more optimistically for their entertainment in the theaters. The thing also fared very poorly as a result at the box office. Even fans of the genre were against the thing. It debuted at number eight, it did fall out of theaters within a month, and it certainly didn't help that it came out two weeks in the wake of E.T., the more benevolent alien film, and three from another fright fest at the movie theaters, Poltergeist, coincidentally directed by the original director assigned to The Thing, Toby Hooper. The Thing only made $20 million off of its $15 million budget, and if you consider advertisement and all that stuff into the mix, that adds up to a loser at the box office. Carpenter, though, thinks that a lot of the criticism against The Thing was undue, especially the accusation that he was glorifying violence. Carpenter feels no person could copycat the murders of this monster in The Thing in reality because nobody has those powers. This is a fantasy. If people also have nightmares about his monster, then he feels he's done his job. Genre fans have grown jaded by derivative monsters over the years, so if he can give them something they're genuinely scared of, isn't that what they want? I mean, this is more terrifying. The monster could be anybody, anybody around you, or it could be everybody at the same time. But for some reason, people wanted to criticize him for that, and they attacked Carpenter for nihilism and replacing Hawk's humanity with suspicion and with bleakness. And Carpenter's monster, he thinks, should evoke no compassion, unlike the Hawks film where he's a stranger in a strange land. This is a creature that, if it were to find civilization, it would destroy all life on the planet in a matter of weeks. There's no reason to make it sympathetic. The Thing's poor performance obviously displeased Universal, in fact, so much that they removed Carpenter altogether from Firestarter. He did get full pay for it for doing nothing, but Carpenter had hoped for a successful first venture in studio films because he wanted to explore other genres like his Western idea, El Diablo, which didn't come to fruition until 1990, and he was barely involved by that point. There was a musical he had in mind about a nuclear reactor meltdown called Prometheus Crisis. That was a little bit more hard to sell with the success and release of the China Syndrome in 1979. He had an idea for a Vietnam War flick, and he had another one on the back burner for uh, the Philadelphia Experiment called Without a Trace. It would be released subsequently in a couple of years as the Philadelphia Experiment. He got a story credit for that one. Unfortunately, The Thing's financial failure gave Carpenter less of the all-important control that he wanted in his career, and he stayed in the horror genre for another Stephen King adaptation, henceforth called Christine. Now, over the years, obviously, if you're listening today, the reputation of The Thing is much different than it was when it was released. It has really grown among horror fans and even science fiction fans. Many genre fans consider this to be Carpenter's best film, and some would even proclaim the thing as a masterpiece. Now, you have to wonder, you know, what might have happened to Carpenter's career if the thing were really successful commercially and critically? What could he have done with more clout, with more confidence in his abilities? What great films might have we been denied? I guess you can only speculate at this point. 
Although it was made in 1982, there's really something ageless about the thing. And I think that's partially because it's set away from civilization. So modern technology is sparse, so it's really hard to get time and place unless you gauge it by the age of the actors. It's also in the middle of nowhere, so even if they had old technology, that seems understandable. You know, this is a movie that really didn't play well, I think, for the thinking, the mindset of people in the 1980s. But today, issues like identity, about trust, are much more prominent especially in the internet age of today, where we have real issues of identity and trust going on in our lives at all times. And I will say also graphic violence, like the one displayed in The Thing, is much more commonplace now. We're much more inured to it, whereas people back in the early 1980s were not accustomed to seeing that level of graphic violence in their face for a prolonged period of time. It became very dispiriting, so they tended to blame the movie for their feelings of discomfort much more so than moviegoers today. So this is a movie that I think was ahead of its time. It wasn't quite the right time for people to be able to digest and enjoy it. So over the years, as things have changed, it has become a very influential movie among movie makers. Countless imitators are out there. And today, I think that's why it feels much more fresh to today's audiences, because there are a lot of films that were influenced by the thing. So it fits right in with what people are watching on a day-to-day basis, if you're a lover of horror or science fiction or a combination of both. I think even by today's standards, the gore factor is still pretty high. You know, I don't think it's been dated. It looks much more convincing than a lot of the CGI gore that you see. So it still is very effective. Truly grotesque and convincing creatures are still there to give you the nightmares. The nightmares that you may or may not want. You know, I do think that Carpenter's creation here really does get under your skin. It gets it under it very early. And if you're hooked in, it does stay there for the duration, and it becomes eventually one of the most riveting horror films, I think, of the 1980s, maybe even of all time. While similar films that came out in the years just before it, Alien and the remake of The Body Snatchers in 1978, I do think that the the thing really does hold its own because of the fantastic action and the engaging performances, especially by Kurt Russell in his third movie with Carpenter. Carpenter really churns up a lot of the thrills, a lot of the chills. He doesn't really miss a beat. In the delivery, the buildup of this film is masterful. The quality of the characterizations, they're, they're short but very effective. And when it all boils over, there's a lot of power in these performances. And while nitpickers can certainly have a field day over the thing, I mean, it, it does have some plot holes. It has some implausible developments here and there. I don't think it really matters because of what you might be looking for going in because the thing is a movie that hooks you in. It doesn't let go. Even when you think you can't look, you can't turn away either. And that's what people want in their horror. Even though it is a graphic horror film, I do think ultimately it succeeds more because of its psychological horror than it does in its graphic horror. And that's why I'm going to give The Thing four stars out of four. Four stars on my scale means I do think that The Thing is an excellent movie. It's a movie that's infinitely rewatchable. For me, I've watched it probably a dozen times over the years, and I like it more each time. There's just so much going on there. And the more distance that I think it is from the time that it came out, the more that you you can appreciate the thing. This is a movie that you don't even have to be a lover of the 1980s to appreciate it. And that's why I think the thing really holds up enough to give it four stars out of four. Now, The Thing did take a while for continuations to happen. Uh, In 2005, there was a miniseries sequel contemplated to be made for the Sci-Fi Channel by Universal called Return of the Thing. Frank Darabont was going to produce, but it didn't quite make it to production. 
There was a big budget remake uh, prequel theatrical feature made in 2011 that recounts what happened at the Norwegian research station that discovered the thing. There was a female protagonist for that film, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, that you can pick up. The story also continued in comic books from Dark Horse. There was a 2002 video game sequel that was set uh, decades later. It also featured voice work by John Carpenter in that game. So I guess there's some cred there. Universal Studios used The Thing as one of its Haunted Horror Nights theme park attractions for Halloween at Universal Studios Orlando in 2007. And then they tied it more into that prequel movie in 2011. That was called The Thing Assimilation. It was set 25 years after the events of the movie. In 2018, there was kind of a new discovery in the realm of The Thing. The original story, Who Goes There? They found out that that story was not a full story. It was an abridged version of this unpublished novel entitled Frozen Hell that was done by John Campbell. It wasn't published, at least not till 2019, in book form. And in 2020, John Carpenter announced he was collaborating for a reboot of The Thing with Blumhouse Productions that are going to use elements from that more complete novel by Campbell. So I guess if you're a fan of The Thing, there are a lot more interesting developments coming up. Will it ever make it finally to the screen? I have a little bit more hope for this one. Anyway, I hope that you enjoyed this look at The Thing, and I hope people who are big fans, there are people who are even way bigger fans of The Thing than I am, that you enjoyed this look back. If you have your own thoughts on The Thing that you want to impart to me, something I may not have covered that you want to talk about, you can find my contact information at my website. That's at quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R.net. Links to my Twitter feed, my Facebook page, my Instagram. Email is the best way to get in touch with me, by the way. As far as what I'm going to be covering on the next episode, I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to continue weekly episodes for this show, but on the next episode, I'm going to be talking about a film that features another kind of alien creature that might assimilate, that might consume humanity in its own form or fashion if left unchecked. And it is also a film that is kind of based on an old movie from the 1950s. It's called The Blob from 1988, and that will be the film I cover on the next episode episode of Around the World in 80s Movies. So I hope that you'll check that film out before I get to the review. And until next time, thank you so much for listening and joining me on this trip around the world in 80s movies. Mm -hmm.